Why don't we turn to the left-hand side of your notes to a little background or to some background and a little context. Letter A, hospitality or sharing meals is not a new idea. It was a way of life in the ancient world, yet it's a forgotten idea in our world today. Letter B, Jesus, however, is going to take this ordinary idea, this concept, and is going to use it to do the radically extraordinary. And let us see. Today, we'll see Jesus take a habit, take something simple that everyone can do and use it to allow God to do what only he can do, and that is change the human heart. So why don't you dive in with me to Luke 19, verse 21. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector in the region. Circle that. The chief tax collector, and he had become very rich from extortion. Verse 3. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Underline that. I must be a guest in your home today. Verse six, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and, and uh, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement. But the people were displeased, all the people that he had extorted and robbed. He, uh, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Underline that. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home Today, for this man has showed himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, circle that, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, if you grew up in church, there's a good chance that you've heard this story before. There's a good chance that you had, like I had, um, a, 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 some lady explain to you this story on a felt board, and she began to explain to you about poor short Zacchaeus and how he had to climb a fycamore tree. And she would wrap up today's lesson with all of us little boys and girls around the felt board, and she would say something like, now Jesus loves short people too. And Jesus loves tall people. Jesus loves all people. And so should you. And they tie a nice little bow on this story. But let's take a look at something going on underneath the surface. That word you circled there, the son of man. This is an important phrase that Jesus would use throughout his time in ministry. And the, the, the author, Luke, Luke, who's transcribing this gospel, Luke would use this phrase as a literary and an auditory device to signify something important to Luke's audience, whether they are listening or reading. Jesus will use this, uh, and Luke will, will utilize this several times to draw your attention to key points that Jesus made about himself. Jesus would say things like, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. The Son of Man must die and rise three days 
later. The Son of Man has not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And so Jesus, using this phraseology, Luke, utilizing this auditory and literary tool, is going to draw your attention to what some have called Jesus's mission to seek and save the lost. Now, the ancient uh, Israelites and all throughout the centuries would pick up on this auditory device and they would connect the dots to all the other times Jesus has said this phrase, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. So let's take a look at the bottom of your notes, Luke 7, and we're going to connect the dots here and take a look at our main practice and habit for this week in our series. Luke 7, NIV, verse 33, for John the Baptist is a Jesus talking. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon, meaning John was kind of radical. He was kind of out there. Verse 34, the son of man came eating and drinking. There's that term again, the son of man. The son of man, however, came eating and drinking. Circle that. Came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors like Zacchaeus, right? And sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her children. So we're taking a look at what a lot of people have said and commentated as Jesus's mission here on earth to seek and save the lost. Would you agree with that? That's a good summation of Jesus's mission. You could just shake your heads, make me feel better. Perfect. This is a summation of Jesus's mission to seek and save the lost. And in Luke 7, we have what commentators call Jesus's method for seeking and saving the lost. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus came sharing meals. So Jesus's mission, seek and save the lost. Jesus's method, how did he do that? To share meals with all people from all walks of life. So take a look at our main practice and our habit for this series, sharing meals, sharing meals with our neighbors, with our family, and with our God. That last part sounds a little weird, I know, but roll with me. We'll unpack that. Notice, letter A, Jesus is using sharing meals as a method of inviting the lost, connecting with the hurting, and transforming the human hearts. First subpoint: Jesus's mission to seek and save the lost, Jesus's method, uh, eating and drinking, sharing meals, Jesus's mission and method end up having direct implications for his followers as well. A practice known as hospitality, or in the Greek, it comes from us, this word is called uh, philoxenia, philoxenia, which gets translated into hospitality. Second subpoint: philoxenia is a compound word made up of the Greek word uh, philo or philo. Have any of you ever heard of the city and recent Super Bowl winners, Philadelphia, right? The Philadelphia Eagles, the city of brotherly love. This is where we get this idea from, philo or philo. It's a, one of the four Greek words used for love. It means brotherly love or sisterly love or family love in general. So you take this first word, philo or philo, and xenos. Xenos means stranger, foreigner, or immigrant. Xenos is where we get the term today, xenophobia, 
Have any of you have heard that expression, xenophobia? It is the fear of strangers, the fear of people you don't know. So the Bible, uh, this Greek word, combines these two words uh, into philoxenia, which translate to love to strangers or love for strangers or, as we know it today, hospitality. That's your lesson in Greek today. Turn your neighbor, tell them, good job. Good job. You did it. You learned something new. We're going to key in on this practice called radically ordinary hospitality and how it changed the face of the planet. A lot of people think that Jesus was crucified because of the radical things he said, which, yes, Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to our Heavenly Father is a radical statement. However, I love what another commentator said, that Jesus was not crucified just for what he said, but Jesus was crucified for who he chose to eat with, who he chose to eat with, guys like Zacchaeus, uh, uh, people in the lowest rung of the moral ladder. This radical hospitality is what began to change the ancient Near East and how it continued to change the Roman Empire and into our Western society today. So let me ask you, how many of you would appreciate or at least enjoy hearing a story from my life that relates back to our verses and has profound meaning and impact in your life as well. How many of you would enjoy that? Anyone at all? Okay, maybe later, if you're good. If you're, so help me, I will turn this sermon around. But why don't we instead talk about our collective story? Why don't we talk about our collective story through the form of terrifying statistics to really shock and awe you so we can drive our main point home? Does that sound better? I promise it won't be that painful. Let's take a look at this idea of sharing meals together or hospitality. Do you, can you all recall that Norman Rockwell painting or that photo of a family eating around a dinner table? Let's talk about this, uh, this practice, this, this, this art form of the human experience and where it's at today. Are you ready? Do you have your seatbelts on? Are you prepared for statistics? Okay, let's do this. Half of 17, the best we can surmise, half, or I'm sorry, let's start here. 17% of Americans, you guys ready? I, so, I told you to be prepared. 17% of Americans report still eating together as a family today. 17%. So how much other percent, any math people, do not report regularly eating around a table? Any math guys? Jeff, you got me here? You, oh, yeah, 83. 17% still report eating uh, dinner around a family, to, around a table today. Check this out, though. Half of that 17% who reported eating together, half eat dinner while watching TV. That means instead of sitting around a table, half of those people who report eating together are sitting around the TV because let's face it, Netflix isn't gonna watch itself, right? So what does that leave us with? That leaves us with about 8.5, right, Jeff? Am I on it? 8.5%, of the best that we can figure, 8.5% still eating around a table today, sharing a meal, sharing dinner like that Norman Rockwell photo, 8.5%. Now, 
now. 60 years ago, the average length of dinner lasted around an hour and a half. An hour and a half. Can you remember when you were younger being forced to sit around a table, especially when you were a teenager and you had nothing to say to your parents because you thought you knew everything, right? But uh, an hour and a half 60 years ago. Guess how long the average span of dinner takes today? Guess. Turn. 20, 15, 30, 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Hey, come on. Survivor is not going to watch itself, people. Survivor is on. Now, as best as can be surmised through uh, statistics, um, it's not a perfect art, but it does help us track some things. Uh, not only are we seeing a decline in eating together as a family in these recent decades, but hospitality, eating dinner with other families like the Joneses, the Rojases, the Lees, the Smiths. Hospitality, the best that we can surmise has dropped 40% in recent decades. Almost half of the hospitality, the Norman Rockwell photo of eating together as a family and having others, hospitality has decreased by 40% in recent years. Now, here's the problem. Are you ready for this? Scientists have proven that there are dozens of negative correlations to dismantling this most ancient of human experiences. Scientists are actually finding proof of the negative correlations that not eating together regularly is having on us as a society, especially our children. Parents, take a look at this. Uh, families all across the U.S. not regularly eating together are uh, reported likely uh, 40% more likely to have children struggling with depression, anxiety, and obesity, 40% more likely. Whereas children who do, uh, families who do report regularly eating together are more likely to have children with lower rates of depression, anxiety, obesity, and they actually graduate with higher grade point averages. Isn't that crazy? Eating dinner around a table is helping increase grade point averages. Who would have known? Now, not only are we finding these statistics across the board, but neurobiology, studying how the brain works, is continuing to reaffirm these findings, meaning not only is this something we can measure, but this is something that science is continuing to prove. And yet, isn't it strange that the way of culture and society, and the Western world, whether you view society as inherently evil or just unintentionally volatile, Western society continues to dismantle and divide the nation politically, ethically, morally, racial, uh, racially, relationally, even dismantling the family unit itself. The bedrock of society is being dismantled, divided, and redefined. And now we have the first generation that has grown up uh, 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 having seen widespread divorce. We have the first generation growing up where divorce has become the normative. And now we are the most lonely, we are the most depressed, and we are the most anxious, anxious populations on the face of the planet. We are living in what sociologists are calling the loneliest era of human existence. England or Britain, how do you refer to their country over there? It's so awkward. Like, if it's not America, get out. Like, who cares, right? I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. That was offensive. But 
England has actually appointed a minister of loneliness, a minister of loneliness, and has allocated government resources to curing the epidemic of loneliness in their country. England, the Western world, is, is grasping for straws. We are gasping for air as we are trading um, authentic connection for artificial connection. And as we continue to dismantle and divide the family unit, we are looking online to fulfill those uh, authentic connections. And here's the problem that we're finding with social media, though. Social media is actually uh, rewiring our brain brain to experience greater levels of depression and anxiety, not the opposite. Social media is actually rewiring our brain to increase negative levels of self-body image, meaning how we view ourselves and our contentment. We are seeing that social media is not building the human experience of connection. Social media is actually inverting and subverting authentic human connection. And we are living in the loneliest era of human existence. And to top all of that off, LeBron James is now a Los Angeles Laker. <laughs> are you terrified yet, people? You should be. So those were, uh, those were my, my little nerd out statistics for you and a uh, little science that I do on the research. You wonder what I do throughout the week. It's mostly this and some other stuff here and there, just a little to keep me busy. But um, we here in Menifee, we are not a subculture of Los Angeles that is progressively plunging the rest of the nation into a progressive dystopian future where there are no more rules and laws. We here in Menifee are not some part of Portland or Seattle, where we're trying to just change the world upside down, we here in Menifee, whether it's inadvertently through the fast-paced lifestyle or whether it's inadvertently through the high cost of living, forcing nowadays both parents to work more than 40 hours a week, which is becoming the normative, or whether it's just through the over-programming of our children through what used to be after-school activities, which are now 30 to 40-hour commitments a week through sports, through dance, through arts, through other recreation, we too are seeing dismantling of the, of the family downtime. We are seeing a dismantling of one of the most foundational experiences to the human condition, and that is eating together. And now we are seeing that something as simple as eating together has negative repercussions further than we could ever imagine. Y'all didn't know that Hot Pockets were that evil, did you? You just thought that you could pop it in the microwave, go back to watching Netflix, playing on your laptop and your cell phone at the same time. And yet, as we are seeing society polarized by social media, as we are seeing society divided by media extremes, as we are seeing the, the, the family unit being divided and redefined according to a progressive movement, which we haven't seen for hundreds of years, is there a practice from the way of Jesus that can restitch the fabric of our society? Is there a practice from Jesus that could restitch the fabric of our families, restitch the fabric of our society, restitch the fabric of our lives and our marriages? And it turns out that this actually isn't a progressive movement at all. It's regressive. You see, Jesus 
came in the time of the Roman Empire when it was at its peak. And the Roman Empire was a lot like our Western society today, where Western society is beginning to redefine what family, what life, what virtue, what values look like. Jesus grew up and was born in a time where the Romans were infatuated with hypersexuality, with hyper-greed and materialism, with hyper-power struggles and status attainment. And yet Jesus, uh, being a part of a Roman-occupied territory where Rome and their values are hyper-liberal, Jesus grows up in ancient Israel, which is a hyper-conservative nation. And so we see the people of the day caught in this tension between hyper-liberalism as the norm from the Roman Empire, occupying 25% of the world. And then we see the ancient Israelite people who are so hyper-conservative that execution was the basic form of punishment for breaking even one of the laws and one of the commands of God. And yet in the middle of this tension between hyper-liberal and hyper-conservative, just like we are seeing the polarization of our nation through hyper-liberalism, hyper-conservatism, Jesus teaches us a middle way to re-stitch the fabric of our lives and our society and our families as a whole. And he does it through radical hospitality. Take a look at your next section with me, sharing meals, hospitality, and how it applies to us. Number one, sharing meals as invitation. Sharing meals as invitation. Jesus used meals to cross all social divisions and gaps. Here in our story today, Jesus is eating with a short man. It's, it's so sad, like one descriptive term, and that's what you're stuck with for thousands of years. He is eating with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is the lowest moral rung of society. Imagine the worst of the worst person in your mind right now. Imagine the lowest of the low of the American moral rung in our society. Imagine the worst person possible. And this is who Jesus is choosing to eat dinner with. This is who Jesus is choosing to be a guest with. This is who Jesus is choosing to cross a social boundary and eat dinner with a guy like Zacchaeus, who's extraordinary men and women. Uh, he is extorting food off of their table from their children's mouths to fill his pockets and bank account. And this is who Jesus is choosing to eat with, Zacchaeus. And all throughout the Bible, we are commanded to show this same radical hospitality of sharing meals with people who might not be like us. Now, you might not be called to eat dinner with a nuclear terrorist. Probably not. But you are called through scripture to eat with your neighbor which is worse. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. Uh, we see in the Bible, in your next section, take a look at this. Uh, now, subpoint. now we are commanded to do the same. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 2. We are told to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Notice, love connected to hospitality. First Peter uh, chapter four, verse eight, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, you introverts. And verse 10, that's a added, that wasn't in there. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Notice Peter is connecting deep love with hospitality and sharing meals. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Do you have a home? 
Have you received the blessing of owning a home or renting a home? Use whatever gift you've been given. Invite your neighbors over. Do you have an apartment off McCall? Invite your neighbors over who live three doors down. Do you live on a couch in your mother's basement? But do you have $20? Go buy $20 worth of tacos. Bring it to a friend. Whatever gift you have, use. Loving deeply is connected to hospitality. And finally, in Romans chapter 2, we are told, verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality over and over and over. We see that hospitality is the practice of inviting those who feel far from God's presence close to God through your presence. We see over and over and over that hospitality, it it, it represents God's invitation into his eternal kingdom through an invitation into your everyday home. We see hospitality representing God's love and his mercy through your love and your mercy to invite somebody over and spend time with them. We see God's kindness and his goodness represented through your kindness to overlook somebody's idiosyncrasies and still invite them into your home. We see over and over throughout the Bible that we are supposed to be the ones who cross the bridge of social norms. We are supposed to be the ones who do not retreat to our castles of our comfort zone after work, but our homes are meant to be an outpost for the gospel, to reach the lost, to reach the hurting, to reach the neighbors besides us who need to know the love of God as seen through your everyday love of just sharing a meal. And we see hospitality used by Jesus to take those far from God and bring them close to God through sharing a simple meal. Number two, Sharing meals brings transformation. Luke 19, verse 8, we see Jesus uh, coming over to Zacchaeus' house. But as they are on the way, Zacchaeus gets called out by the crowd. Zacchaeus is confronted by the sin of all those he has wronged. Zacchaeus is confronted by all those he has extorted. And Zacchaeus caught in confrontation between his sin and Zacchaeus caught between Jesus's kindness and his invitation brings Zacchaeus into, into repentance. Zacchaeus confronted with sin. Zacchaeus confronted with God's kindness. He, we find Zacchaeus become transparent. We find Zacchaeus becoming repentant and he opens up and he confesses, Lord, if I have done wrong, I will give to the needy. And Lord, if I have wronged anyone, I will pay them back four times as much. And we see in the book of Romans, it teaches us that God's kindness leads to repentance. And we see God's kindness bring Zacchaeus to authentic transparency and repentance. Have you ever had a moment like that with the Lord? Oh, Father, forgive me, I've blown it. Oh, Lord, forgive me, I've I've screwed up again. And Zacchaeus becomes transparent with his sins. And we see that transparency leads to transformation. I do not think that sharing Domino's pizza with your spouse three times a week is gonna change your marriage. I don't, I really don't. But I do believe that sitting together with open communication and dialogue for an hour, three times a week can improve your marriage. 
I don't think that eating chicken chow mein with your kids three times a week is going to change their, their behavioral patterns in this life overnight. But I do believe that eating and sharing time with our children with openness and communication and transparency can help our children and our parenting. I do not believe that sitting at a table is going to be the answer to your finances. I really don't. I'm sorry. I don't. But I do believe that open communication and dialogue with your spouse around difficult subjects through the peace offering of breaking bed can create transparency and openness and a weekly regular practice of communication can bring transformation. And so I see throughout this verses, I see Zacchaeus confronted by his sin, yet also confronted by Jesus's kindness, and it leads him to transparency. What can transparency do in the life of your marriage? What could transparency do in the life of your children? What could transparency do in the life and in the culture of your home? What could transparency do in your faith? Transparency led to transformation. And this is what we see in Zacchaeus's life. And finally, sub point number three, or point number three, take a look at this with me. Sharing meals as a representation of salvation. Letter A, Jesus uses, uh, Jesus often compares himself metaphorically to food. Now, uh, we were planned and scheduled to have communion today. And if you have been in church in the recent decades, uh, you know that communion is something we celebrate as a church. uh, And it signifies, it represents our remembrance of Jesus's sacrifice for us. But it's important because most of us are used to communion, eating a little cracker that's like this big and no nutritional source of substance at all. We eat a cracker this big and we have a little juice container, right? And this is this allows communion to be done collectively in congregationally, corporately, where you and I can have communion with each other in big settings like this. But it's important to note communion was not always celebrated like this. Communion, the art of communion, the practice of communion as set forth by Jesus. Jesus was having a meal before his, crucif- his crucifixion and he's eating with his best friends. And he says, take this bread and break it in remembrance of me. And the bread symbolizes Jesus's body being broken on the cross for your sins and for mine. It represents Jesus's body and his affliction and what he was gonna go through on the cross. And then Jesus passes the bread and says, eat in remembrance of me. And then Jesus takes the wine and he pours it in the cup. And he says, this wine symbolizes my blood poured out for the salvation of man. This blood symbolizes the the new covenant that is gonna be poured out through my blood for you, through the repentance, through forgiveness of your sin, by grace, through faith, right? And so we take these two elements of communion, the, 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 the body symbol, symbolized in the bread, the blood symbolized through the wine, and we eat and drink together. And this is the part of the service where I would invite you to grab your bread element and eat in remembrance of what Jesus did. And then a moment would go by and I'd tell you to drink in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And we would celebrate communion that way. But it's important to know, communion wasn't done in churches for the first 
300 years because the church was illegal. It wasn't allowed to be in a building. So what they would do is they would have communion in their homes and they would invite people over to experience communion together through the celebration of breaking the bread and pouring the wine. Just as Jesus invited us to partake in communion, so too we are to invite others to be in communion with us. That as we celebrate what Jesus does in our life, we're to invite other people in our lives as well through radical hospitality. This is what Jesus models. This is what Jesus shows us. Radical hospitality, sharing meals in communion, symbolizing God's invitation into his kingdom, represented through our invitation to our neighbors around us. So, as we wrap up, number four, radical hospitality. Radical hospitality flows from hearts that have been radically healed. Radical hospitality flows from hearts that have been radically healed. I know what I'm teaching you is countercultural. I was talking with our team leads today about uh, what culture we're going to build here at Cornerstone. And I was talking with our every volunteer about what culture is our church going to have? What are we going to be known for? And we've been talking about how cool would it be to be known as a church, as a church that invites people over for dinner the neighbors around us, how radical and countercultural would that be nowadays to actually invite neighbors like us over for dinner where we can share laughs, where we could share hurts, where we could share God's goodness in our life. What would that look like in your life today? As I was sitting Thursday morning, finishing most of this sermon in a cool coffee shop, I, uh, I don't have time to tell you the full story, but I was sitting there in this cool coffee shop at 8 a.m. and uh, two men walk in, one big guy. I mean, the dude must have been a linebacker in the NFL. Huge handlebar mustache. Maybe he was a Hells Angels, who knows? But he had a giant handlebar mustache and uh, he was older in age. He was probably around 55, total, total gray mustache. It looked awesome. It was glorious. And uh, a young man walks in with him, probably his son. And the young man is bald head and he is bearded and they are sitting in the comfortable chair uh, area of this cool coffee shop because in cool coffee shops you have to have recliner chairs now for some reason. And so they're sitting close to each other because the chairs are right next to each other. The chairs are like from me to my friend Zach here. The chairs are awkwardly close. You would admit this is awkwardly close, right? And so they're sharing a coffee, enjoying some laughs, must be father and son or maybe close relatives. I don't know. And um, a third man walks in 15 minutes later, and there is no room in the coffee shop at this time. It is packed. People need their lattes. They have back to school. It's a madhouse, people. And there is no room left in the coffee shop. And this, this young man, probably around my age, walks in, and there is no place to sit except one more comfy chair sitting awkwardly close to Handlebar Mustache Man. And so the young man has no place to sit. I like to watch people when I write my sermon. It's motivation for how jacked up all of us are. And so this young man walks in, no place to sit, looks around, 
realizes there's no place to sit, and he sits awkwardly close to Mustache Man. And five minutes later, he pulls out a Bible and a journal, and he starts journaling. And then a couple moments go by when Bald Guy reaches out his hand and shakes hands with Bible Guy. And they start talking and they start laughing. And then Mustache Man joins in and they're sharing smiles. They're sharing laughs. They're sharing stories. And that's when I noticed that Bald Guy has a Jesus tattoo on his forearm. Whether you feel good about tattoos or not, it is what it is. He had a Jesus tattoo on his forearm. And that's when I connected the dots. Oh, they're talking about God. And so I took out my headphones and I'm listening to their story. I'm listening to their conversation. I'm eavesdropping, which I don't know if I should be doing as a pastor, but I'm doing it anyways. And then mustache man and bald guy shake hands with Bible guy and they leave. I thought you said this guy was good at telling stories. What's the point? Let me ask you, in your mind's eye, what ethnicity was Bible guy? Because he sat down close with handlebar mustache guy and bald guy who were also white. But he wasn't. And I see the most beautiful image of what the church is. I see Bible guy walk in, young black guy and bald just like me, sit down awkwardly close to a man who is 30 years his elder, who has the craziest looking handlebar mustache. And even I think he's a sketchy character. And he sits awkwardly close to this man and five minutes go by and boom, Jesus brings unity, boom. Jesus brings connection, boom. Jesus brings life-giving conversation that transcends social norms and boundaries that would even have men decades apart, that would even have men who society would say are, are different because of the color of their skin and yet men united in Jesus Christ enjoying the goodness of God because we are all one in Jesus Christ through the blood that he shed through us. Can you imagine a community and Menifee that would be known for not by its division and its separation and its isolationism to its neighbors, but could you imagine a community in Menifee that is known for its love and its hospitality where neighbors become friends and friends become family of God? Can you imagine neighborhoods in Menifee where children, little white children, little black children, little Mexican children, little Hispanic children, little Asian children, it doesn't matter what kind of child or what background you come from, but could you imagine children playing in a front yard, rolling taco trucks, skipping rope, growing up knowing that there is not division or difference or separation, but there is unity and strength in the body of Jesus Christ, that we are not separate because of our differences, but we are stronger because of our differences. This is the picture of radical hospitality. It crosses boundaries. It it crosses social norms, it crosses division, and it crosses all separation just so that you could
could find that the person which society would say is different from you is actually your brother and sister in Christ. This is radical hospitality. It turns strangers into neighbors and it turns neighbors into family of God. What could our neighborhood look like through radically ordinary hospitality? What could our friendships look like with our neighbors through radically ordinary hospitality? Can you envision a community here in Menifee that is not known for its isolationism, but a community in Menifee that is known for its communion together, for its love for one another, for radical hospitality, where if you live next to me or if you live across from me, so help me, Lord, I am bringing dinner to you or you are coming over for dinner with me. Can you imagine a place where our children grow up, not in isolationism, but a place where our children grow up in connection with one another, that even though the Joneses don't see eye to eye with me, I'm still willing to sit across the table and sit eye to eye with them. And that even though they might not agree with everything I agree with, they will get to know the love of Jesus Christ through me, whether they like it or not. They will know that there are followers of Jesus not treating their homes as castles of comfort, but as an outpost for the gospel. What would this look like in our city of Menifee today. Who are some neighbors that God is calling on your mind? A practice that I want to leave you with today when it comes to our series on habits, this week's practice and habit, share a meal with a neighbor or with an acquaintance. Is it a work friend? Is it a neighbor? Who is it that God is putting on your mind to just come over and have some food with? or to go over there and bring some food to them. What could God do through radically ordinary hospitality in your life? Pray with me today. Lord Jesus, I know we went long, forgive me, but Lord, I pray that there will be sparks ignited in this place, that we could take a look at the life of a guy like Zacchaeus and we would see Jesus's radically ordinary hospitality bring transparency and bring transformation in the life of one of the worst people in their society. Jesus's kindness led to repentance. Lord Jesus, what can you do through us, through sharing meals, through honest conversation, through sharing laughs and tears and testimony. Lord Jesus, what can you do through us today? Lord Jesus, thank you for everyone that is here. Lord Jesus, we love you. We trust you. And it's in your name that me and all my friends pray aloud. Amen. Will you stand with me? And will you turn to a neighbor and say, where are we going to eat after this? Go ahead. Where are we going to eat after this?